It might be a question you haven't thought about in a while. Perhaps it came to you last as you gazed up at a clear night sky, blinking stars shimmering against an intricately and potentially infinitely illustrated canvas. Or maybe as you looked down into the shimmering waters of a local pond, each drop of water teeming with countless living organisms. It could even have been a question that you asked your friends at sleepovers when you were younger watching sci-fi films on a Friday night. But today, I want to pose the question, what is life? What separates it from the water in that pond? What's different about the leaves of a tree and the breeze that blows through them? And furthermore, how did life begin? And are we alone in the universe? These are some of the biggest questions in biology and in science. And to begin to answer, in this programme, I'm going to turn to evolutionary biologists, molecular ecologists, and even physicists who spend their days observing and characterising distant planets, searching for those that are Earth-like. Well, I'm Dr Ben, and I'm very, very pleased to have you join us on this programme. We're going to start by talking to evolutionary biologists from the University of Exeter's Cornwall campus, Professor Sasha Dahl and Professor Dave Hoskin. So let's start by asking that question of the evolutionary biologists. What is life? It's a very, very old question, right? Um, and even, I mean, predates our understanding of evolution, predates genes, predates all the things that everybody kind of posits are you know kind of central to life as far as i'm aware there are kind of two you know two kind of main ways that people approach this on the one hand people talk about replication and the need and self-replication the need the fact that what you're doing is you know you can reproduce and that reproductive lineages are at the heart of of biodiversity you can't understand biodiversity without without understanding reproductive lineages and their history and and their dynamics replication with some fidelity right you're talking about things that that you know entities that can copy themselves uh and they're not gonna be able to copy themselves forever because nothing can escape the second law of thermodynamics eventually you know it changes just because you nothing's you can can never have a perfect process um, in practice, so so then the sweet spot is how much, how much, how long do you need to be faithful before it stops being a replicator? Yeah. If you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. So and people talk a little bit about that. I mean, and, and it depends over which time steps you look from time step to time step. There should be reasonably high fidelity, but over the vast tracts of time sure. that yeah. initiator to end point sure. might be quite different. Well, biological processes are defined, I mean, the time, the, the relevant, important time scale for biological processes is the replication time, is the, is the unit, the time over which it takes to produce another copy, mm-hmm. produce copies, right? So there isn't an absolute time scale. So for a, a bacterium, it's going to be much, much quicker. The world is a much quicker place mm-hmm. than an elephant, mm-hmm. Right. So, but it, this is why, you know, where, when we work at an evolutionary scale and try to predict evolutionary dynamics, and we talk about time in them, we're, you know, we pretty much always have to be referring to, to, to sort of reproductive time, yes. if you like, reproductive time scale. So yes, it's how many, how many reproductive time, how many reproductive events are you keeping 
the, the kind of the, most of the structure intact, intact. And in fact, you don't keep all of the structure intact in any replication process. Uh, I mean, biology tends to be dominated by these information-rich molecules that allow for uh, they're very stable from a chemical from a biochemical perspective from an entropic perspective perspective they allow this they allow the structure the kind of core information to persist for long enough for it to be considered you know a replicator and replication from you know in an evolutionarily meaningful way you know some people suggest that you need this kind of replication to be going on for there to be life okay but then you have to include things like um some types of crystals, some, some biochemical processes, autocatalytic um, networks, RNA, you know, viruses. So Professor Sasha Dahl has highlighted the importance of having something capable of replication when we're talking about life. And we've just talked about viruses and whether these two fit that definition. I'm going to turn now to Professor Michael Sweet from the University of Derby, who's going to delve more into viruses and how to think about them in this context. And in doing so, we're going to move closer to some potential explanations for the origin of life. That brings us on to, to viruses. So viruses are, are super cool. Um, they're, they're non-cellular, so they, they don't have cells like the single-celled organisms like proteists and bacteria and things like that. Um, but it's a non-cellular particle made up of genetic material uh, and protein uh, that can invade uh, living cells. So the, they were first identified in, in 1898, and that was actually the, the tobacco mosaic virus because it was causing mass problems for the tobacco industry. So a lot of people and a lot of money was put into that. Um, and since then, uh, thousands of viruses have been described, um, and quite a lot of them are, are disease-associated, um, but uh, the vast majority of them uh, behave in a way that they need uh, another organism uh, to survive. Yeah. Um, but even though we know so much about viruses now, the actual origins of viruses remains unknown. So not only do we not know the origin of life, um, but we don't understand the origin of where these, these viruses have actually come from. Have they come from plasmids? Have they come? Have they evolved when the first bacteria evolved, or did they evolve uh, when eukaryotes uh, came onto the scene? Or well, my likely theory is that they've evolved in many different instances, and hence why you get this plethora of diversity associated with uh, viruses and the the different types that you find. And so. Because of that, um, they, they are often referred to as organisms on the edge of life. Um, and I find that a beautiful term because uh, life still uh, uh, finds a way. Life is still uh, pushed in there. Uh, they still replicate. Uh, they're still passing on their genetic information. But they play a, a really interesting uh, role in, in what's called horizontal gene transfer. And that's been associated with actual evolution of, of uh well, all, all organisms higher than, than the viral side of things. So basically every other aspect of life uh, that we could discuss. So whether viruses are really vital as far as talking about uh, the, uh, life and, and whether we're going to find viruses on, on other planets or not um, is, is, is one argument. But then the importance associated with that and how it structures and, and changes other aspects of life uh, is definitely something which can't be uh, uh, argued with. And what you get with viruses uh, is, again, these, these various different hypotheses. And I find these, these beautiful things to, to talk about. 
So one of the one of the hypotheses for where viruses come from was is called the regression hypothesis, um, and it's also known as the reduction hypothesis. And the, the argument here is that um, things like bacteria uh, bacteria such as uh, rickettsia or chlamydia uh, can only reproduce inside host cells. So maybe over time uh, that these bacteria, uh, which have that reliance on other organisms to actually reproduce, same as what viruses uh, do in today's day and age, uh, are just uh, small cells which have parasitized larger cells uh, and over time lost some of their genes. And therefore, this idea of regression or reduction uh, comes into play. And so that would argue that there had to be some other form of life to start off with. And then these viruses came in and, and were paras parasites uh, after that concept. The, the next uh, theory talks about the, the sort of cellular origin hypothesis, uh, uh, and this is also known as the escape hypothesis. Different people like to come up with different uh, hypotheses which fit into this. And in my mind, uh, this sort of echoes uh, with the protocells because uh, this escape hypothesis talks about uh, a folded DNA um, and the, uh, the, act the actual aspect of uh, plasmids, so pieces of DNA which can move between cells, uh, or transposons, which are the mobile genetic elements, uh, being able to move away from uh, a, a cell like a bacteria um, and start to live on its own and, again, uh, produce a, a sort of parasitic, parasitic aspect. Um, so that's the, the escape hypothesis or cellular origin hypothesis. But again, that, that refers to the fact that you would have had a, a bacteria in this instance uh, as the, the original origin of life. Um, the next one is, uh, and this is the sort of uh, third and final, really, um, and this is the virus th first hypothesis or the coevolution hypothesis. Um, and this is the concept where they, they've actually evolved from, from complex molecules of proteins and nucleic acids at the same time as cells, uh, and they have a dependency of cellular life uh, for, for billions of years. So um, something which uh, led to that uh this hypothesis is, is the, the discovery of viroids. And viroids are similar to viruses. They're actually a classification of viruses. And they're molecules of RNA which lack the protein coat. So uh, the protein coat is, is one of the essential uh, aspects of what a virus is. Uh, there's all these things called virus-like particles, uh, which are where you use things like transmission electron microscope to actually try and describe uh, what viruses look like in, in anything, tissues and things like that. Um, and because it's quite tricky to actually uh, describe them, uh, most scientists call them VLPs, virus-like particles. And uh, But what we're looking for is distinct shapes and structures and things like that. Um, and viroids are actually missing one aspect of, of what, what makes a virus. Um, and interestingly, they, they do not code. Uh, so these viroids do not code for proteins and use the host machinery again for their, their replication. Um, but it's another sort of missing link. Uh, which suggests that you might have had viroids first, then viruses, uh, and then moving on to uh, more higher complex uh, organisms or even single-celled uh, uh, cells. Um, so it's it's a fascinating aspect in those sort of contexts. Um, and in fact, uh, with these viroids uh, comes other um, other interesting aspects. So. One of the things that people have looked at recently is you get certain viruses which are known as satellites. And these satellites, again, uh, don't necessarily play by the rule. Um, there's a good example 
so this is a sort of a potential intermediate between viroids and viruses. So you've got viroids, satellites and viruses now. And satellites obviously has connotations with space. So it's a, a, a beautiful aspect uh, to, to talk about in this instance. Uh, but the hepatitis delta virus of humans has an RNA genome similar to viroids, but has a protein coat. And we know that viroids don't have protein coats, so it's not a viroid. Uh, and the protein coat is derived from the hep B virus, but it, but it can't produce its own. So this suggests that uh, you've got this halfway house uh, where the hepatitis delta virus is a satellite and it needs to be uh, associated uh, with the hep B virus um, and it has to replicate, but it's not able to replicate without it. So you've now got this sort of co-habituation of viroids, satellites and viruses, uh, which really starts the, the building block of life, uh, if you can imagine it in, the, in that sort of context. And if that wasn't enough, uh, then you have to bring in uh, this this concept of prions. So so prions are, are again, a, a fascinating aspect, um, and they behave in a very similar way as viruses, uh, but they're actually uh, a, a just a misfolded protein. So it's, it's an infection protein molecule uh, that does not contain DNA or RNA, uh, but behaves in a similar sort of context as far as disease causation, and causes things like scrappy and sheep and mad cow disease, which was uh, uh, brought to fame in the UK uh, in, in the sort of uh, late 90s, uh, early 2000s. Um, and then push out Yakov disease, which is a, um, a, a virus which, uh, or a, a prion, which uh, causes uh, quite, quite severe uh, degradation of the, the brain tissue of humans. And, and this discovery, uh, so the, the idea or the concept of prions uh, brings credence to the theory of the viral evolution from, from self-replicating molecules, so this escape hypothesis aspect. So there's lots of exciting evidence uh, in, in all parts of, uh, of biology and, and science uh, which tries to tackle this aspect of, of origin of life. And the thing what fascinates me the most is that you could quite easily get behind any of these sort of hypotheses because they all have facts and, and figures uh, associated with how, how they can be right. Um, and I really like that because science is, or in my book, science is all about uh, chasing for, for, for that truth. So, so far in our adventure into discovering what is life and trying to explain how it could have started, we've learned about the importance of replication and in defining replication, we found that we had to consider viruses. And now, having delved into the topic deeper, we find that viruses could in fact actually explain the origin of life. As Professor Michael Sweet was explaining there, one potential scenario is that life began as self-replicating molecules, which eventually became viruses, and potentially even through this system of viroids to satellites to viruses and eventually becoming cells. And even if this doesn't turn out to be the way that this worked, it's clear that viruses are absolutely essential for horizontal gene transfer, a mechanism that Michael Sweet was explaining there as being critical for evolution and life as we know it. 
But one key question remains in this story about how life could have begun. And that is the development of complexity, of complex self-replicating molecules from seemingly nothing. So how can we imagine building up the complexity of these replicating units and indeed of the vehicles that contain them, of the cells and so on? Well, it turns out there could be a reason linked to a fundamental law of physics, the second law of thermodynamics. So there's one guy who argues from MIT who's arguing that actually something like adaptation, which is for, the, for just, just kind of, I guess, to get everybody on, 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 on the right page with this, adaptation is the appearance of... Uh, design, if you like, uh, the fit, appearance of fit your environment. yeah, fit, fittedness, as yeah. <laughs> as I like to call it, fittedness to the environment. Uh, he talks about where you've got a kind of uh, these gradients of exergy, high quality energy that's very usable, has a lot of work that you can do with it. It's not not like a you know because the first the second law of thermodynamics is telling you that you'll go from having you know these kind of concentrated kind of high order energy sources to the energy doesn't disappear it just spreads out and becomes less useful becomes this kind of broad useless heat so exergy is a term that i see a lot which seems to refer to this kind of usable the quantity of usable energy but he posits that if there is that if the, every every time you get a grade every time you get a source and there's a great a massive gradient in in exergy locally that you'll get kind of spontaneous self-organized things that will happen like a lightning bolt i mean actually this he talks i mean he gives a nice analogy he, he describes lightning as this is it's quite ordered and what it does is it dissipates it dissipates exergy at a high rate it incre- it's really really good at dissipating entropy and he talks about life as being one of these processes that emerge that probably emerged as a way to dissipate you know as a, reacting to this fundamental if it is true if this if this view is 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 accurate that the, this kind of these kind of gradients create a kind of um, entropic pressure system mm. and so but the pressure but the the things that emerge often represent the local the the details of the environment in which the in which that gradient is embedded so the heterogeneities of the way that the energy can move through the system you know so you do get some representation of the environment So high energy gradients could potentially, in theory, allow complex self-replicating molecules to emerge from seemingly nothing at all, or at least from seemingly random background chemistry. But is there anywhere on Earth that there could have been such a gradient that could have kick-started life, that could have added that spark and turned background chemistry into complex self-replicating biological molecules? Well, it turns out the answer is yes. And understanding where to look could even tie in with the search for life on other planets. So one of the first questions uh, we need to talk about whenever we're we're looking at uh, at life is is what exactly is it? Um, And if you do a quick Google, uh, you'll find that there are many different uh, aspects uh, associated with with what life is and different people describing it. Uh, But by and large, you need some form of a biogenic element, usually carbon, is the obviously our, our life-based source um, in on Earth, uh, a source of energy, and most people think of, of light and photosynthesis in this guy in this region, some form of uh, water, liquid water, um, and a lot of people argue that you need a suitable and, and reasonably stable environment for for evolution to take place. 
Um, so that all sounds uh, perfectly sensible. Uh, and in fact, if you try and think of, of life in the, the general concept, uh, it ticks all those boxes. Um, but when we look further afield, uh, we might not be looking for, for carbon-based life. We might be looking for something like silicon-based life or something uh, associated with that. And in fact, silicon uh, is obviously a, a major uh, aspect, uh, a, ma a major element, uh, which is based in the, in the deep sea. Um, and some people have the, the theory that the deep sea is where, where life actually uh, formulated. So this idea about the origin of life based on energy and entropy, how does this relate to the deep sea environment uh, mentioned by Professor Michael Sweet? Well, as it turns out, one example of these gradients, these energy gradients, where there's a lot of usable energy, so-called usable energy, in contrast to the typical energy we might think of when we talk about heat and temperature. Well, one of these gradients could have existed at deep sea vents, making the emergence of life there, however unlikely, favourable, based on this idea of energy and entropy. Professor Michael Sweet, as an expert in aquatic biology, will talk a bit more about the possibility of the origin of life at these deep sea vents. So the aspect of hydrothermal vents or deep sea vents and how life can be, be looked at is that it's the ideal conditions or it's, or it's theorised to be the ideal conditions uh, for the origin of life. And so this is why uh, certain people are looking into that. It's, it's fascinating uh, environment anyway, just on a, an ecological and a biodiversity aspect. Um, but for the evolution uh, chaps, this is uh, really showing some, some quite exciting aspects. And um, what, what they found, uh, so it's rather than uh, sort of shallow pools and things like that, uh, these deep sea vents uh, are uh, creating a hot, hot bed, uh, uh, forgive the pun, uh, for creating protocells. And for protocells uh, to be created, uh, you, you need this hot, uh, usually alkaline uh, seawater uh, associated with it. So, uh, and, and this idea or this concept of protocells, people have been trying to create protocells in, in lab environments uh, for, for many years uh, because these, these ideas of this protocell uh, and a protocell is, uh, is a, a self-organized uh, and ordered uh, spherical collection of lipids, so um, it's thought to be the, the, the key stepping stone towards the origin of life. There's multiple competing theories associated with, with where and how life started, um, but the, the events are, are among the most promising locations uh, for life beginnings, um, and new findings uh, uh, which have been published in, in places like Nature Ecology and Evolution um, are, are leading uh, in, uh, aspects of information onto this uh, sort of concept. So it's a, that these, these areas are, are mineral-rich chimneys, uh, and they have that alkaline aspect with acidic fluids, um, and it's providing huge amounts of energy, which is, as we remember, one of the important aspects uh, associated with life. Um, but interestingly, down in the, in the depths, obviously, you're not talking about things like photosynthesis, and in fact, quite often, you're not talking about things like heterotrophic feeding, so uh, actual uh, food. Um, you're looking at things like uh, chemosynthesis, so the, the uh, facilitating chemical reactions, um, particularly between things like hydrogen and carbon dioxide, uh, to form these increasingly complex uh, organic compounds. So people are moving forward onto this, and, uh, and I believe, and I need to check this, but I believe that protocell formation has actually been formed uh, in a lab now, um, sort of, uh, again, leading credence uh, onto 
the fact that this this is uh, actually a, a sensible origin story. So we've spoken about replication as a defining feature of life. We've visited potential early life and the potential for viruses not just to be considered as on the edge of this definition, on the edge of life, but in fact potentially explaining the origin of life. And now we've visited the deep sea to hydrothermal vents which could have represented one of the places that could have birthed early life. A theory that could potentially also be made even more likely given ideas about entropy and energy and usable energy gradients based on fundamental laws of physics. But where do we go now in this discussion? We've provided just a few perspectives on what life is and how we define it and potentially where and how and why it began. But it leaves us with perhaps the biggest question. Are we alone in the universe? And for this, I'm going to visit the University of Exeter's Streatham campus. I'm going to talk to astrophysicist Dr. Raphael Haywood, who is a leading expert on identifying exoplanets that are potentially Earth-like in nature. So come with me as we now travel to Exeter to continue the programme. Well, I've just arrived on the University of Exeter's Streatham campus. Um, about to pop into the physics building towering over the rest of the campus just like the research is inside i guess it reaches for the stars so we started the interview by asking dr Raphael hayward whether she believes that there may be other earth-like planets out there you're asking the big question there i mean for <laughs> me as as an astrophysicist i i mean I, I i did my phd on looking for exoplanets i i was i'm really passionate about i mean i think it's amazing that we can you know uh, learn about these worlds that orbit stars that you might not even be able to see in the night sky. It's the precision of our instruments is just incredible and, and our ingenuity in analyzing the data. And, and yet at the same time, you know, the more I find out about these planets, in particular those ones that, you know, are in the Goldilocks zone and we're always striving to find ones that are going to be more similar to Earth, you know, the more I look, the more I realize, like, actually, no, we're not going to find something that's like Earth. It, it would be like saying, okay, so we know now today that, well, one in five stars like the sun has uh, a planet that is roughly the same size as Earth and roughly in the Goldilocks zone, basically. And one in five stars. So there's about 300 billion stars in our galaxy that are roughly like the sun. So you're talking about about 60 billion planets that are temperate and Earth-sized, roughly. Um, but does that make a planet Earth-like? You know, does that does that mean it's going to be like Earth? I mean, it's like talking about, um, you know, you look at, I mean, what we're at seven or eight billion people on the planet here. Every human is is unique, though, right? I mean, it's we're all human, but but even twins are all going to have different they, they have different character they have different personalities they have different experiences in their lives and and so you know even identical twins are never going to be quite the same and and when we look for these planets that you know we want them to be similar to earth i think it's going to be the same thing we're never going to find quite the same thing because we need something that's really really finely tuned and the reason for that i think that's the crux of the matter actually the reason we need something so finely tuned as our own Earth, 
is because we, so by we I mean humanity, but I mean more generally life on Earth, we evolved with our planet for the last two, almost three billion years. And, and so we made it what it is today. And next, I wanted to ask Dr. Haywoods about what I understand to be a really key barrier to ongoing research in locating potentially Earth-like planets. And I believe that one of the big problems is actually background noise or interference on the tools used to find them. Yes, that's, I mean, that's one of the things that really gets my, fires my passion for astrophysics because we're looking at things in such detail that, um, yes, the, the currently the main obstacle to find planets that are, you know, temperate, so the same in a one-year orbit around a sun-like star and about one Earth mass, uh, even planets bigger than that, to be honest, uh, but looking for these small rocky planets, the main challenge is actually, it comes from the stars themselves. So like when we're when we're looking for, for planets beyond our solar system, we're always actually looking at uh, the impact that the planet has on its host star. So remember I was talking about the Doppler method, you've got the, this, the planet is pulling on the star and from that we can deduce that the planet's there and how massive the planet is. The thing is that when you're looking at these signals, I mean they're so small that you have to take into account the fact that the star is not a constant light bulb. The star is like a big massive ball of gas and plasma and you've got flows coming up and down and then you've got the flows interact with the super strong magnetic fields and you get things like on the sun you've got these sunspots, you know, those dark areas of super strong magnetic fields and they inhibit the, the convection, the bubbling up that's happening on the surface of the sun. And stars all have that. and. And all of the, this dynamic, ever-changing movement um, creates, uh, it creates changes in the color of the light. And so remember how I was saying that you measure the Doppler shift by looking at, you know, the, the star is moving back and forth in your line of sight and it creates blue and red shifts. Like the, the light goes blue, red, blue, red. Well, all the flows on the stars, they create little, you know, it, when you've got like a massive thing coming to the front, to the, well, rising up to the surface of the star, it looks like something's coming towards you, right? And then it sinks back and it looks like it's going away. And so you've got blue, reds, and you've got all these micro signals that just completely, sometimes completely obscure your like signal coming from the planet going around the star. And it's, it's incredible that we're even able to say this. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I think it's. It's probably going to surprise me. I think one thing you, that you said um, in that explanation there, which which was awesome. So thank you for that. But one thing you were saying was about you know, it almost sounds like you know we've got the tools and that's totally fine. You know, we're, we're ready to see this unbelievable sort of resolution. Mm -hmm. But actually, what do you do with the data that's coming out of that? And it sounds like that might be one of the key hurdles actually that you're that you're trying to get through. But for example, this this noise. I mean. It, is this one of the things that is this like a really key stepping stone to yeah. to sort of being much better at doing this basically yeah absolutely and um, before I moved to Exeter as a lecturer uh, I was in the States as a postdoc and I worked 
uh, with a, as part of a committee of experts uh, who advised NASA on uh, building a roadmap for the next decades for finding uh, rocky terrestrial planets. And one of the main outcomes of our reports uh, was that we need to address, we need to understand basically the physics of what's going on on the surfaces of stars. We need to be able to model uh, the stellar variations, the stellar variability, that intrinsic variability that stars have that is driven by uh, fluid dynamics and magnetic fields, basically, and the interplay between the two. And that's key. And if NASA wants to find, you know, terrestrial temperate planets, it needs to understand the stars that they orbit, NASA and anybody else. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. I think, yeah. Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, I'm really hoping actually anyone listening in will, will, will think, yeah, wow, that's, that's just absolutely remarkable that, that you can do this. <laughs> and yeah, and to add to that, you know, just to be clear, the solution to that problem is not going to be to build bigger and better telescopes mm. or to go to space to escape, you know, the blurring atmosphere that is around Earth that blurs our, you know, it makes stars twinkle and it pollutes our observations as well. But but the solution to this is is more brain power <laughs> is to actually understand you know the mysteries of the stellar interiors and surfaces so presumably once you sort, sort of start to get a handle on that and you can start to build sorts of what would you do could you kind of build sort of um, models that sort of account for that and then with the data you have you can sort of remove the noise almost is that yeah. sort of the goal that's the idea, absolutely. And we can do that. Um, actually, I've been working quite a bit. Part of my PhD was on this. Um, you can you can look at our own sun because uh, the sun is the only star um, that you can resolve at high spatial resolution. You know, you can see the features on it. And at the same time, what we've been doing, uh, the collaboration that I'm part of, uh, we've been observing the sun as if it were a distant star and we've been observing it with the same instrument the same spectrograph that we use to hunt for planets so we do a lot of uh, this is the harps north collaboration uh, the high accuracy radio velocity planet searcher in the northern hemisphere and it's this uh, instrument on this telescope in la palma in spain and it's been we built it to follow up uh, planet candidates that were discovered originally by the kepler mission back in the 2010s and since then, uh, you know, we had Kepler and now we've got, uh, then Kepler broke and it became K2. And now there is the TESS mission that's finding a lot of planets in our celestial neighborhood, as in around the brightest stars in our neighborhood. So multiple ongoing projects seek to further characterize and find exoplanets, uh, particularly those that could be Earth-like and therefore could potentially harbor life. And that's where you come in. Dr. Haywood told me about initiatives that mean everybody can get involved in the search for exoplanets. You can become an exoplanet hunter yourself. Uh, now we're talking. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's led by Oxford. There is a um, website that has been built uh, by astronomers, astrophysicists, and, and of course uh, people who know how to build slick websites. And uh, you, they've basically dumped all the data from, from Kepler, and I'm pretty sure there's test data on there as well, and K2. All this data is publicly available uh, from NASA. 
and and on this website they've put the reduced data and basically you can you can go yourself and they train you on how to eyeball these light curves so the tests and Kepler emissions they look for transits so they look at, for little dips in lights periodic dips in in the brightness of the star as the planet goes around the star and and they train you and and then you can go out and and eyeball you know however many light curves you want to eyeball uh, you, you want to take regular breaks <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like comes from experience. Yes, yes. I, I'm pretty sure some of my eyesight prescription came from uh, after a session of eyeballing, an intense weekend session. But yeah, and you you can basically you know it will show you that what the algorithm thinks are transits, but you have to look at it uh, and and you can say you know what you think it is. And this is incredibly useful because the fact is that we're getting so much data. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of light curves, millions of light curves, millions of potential transit events. And AI is not able to say for sure what it is, you know? And and only a human eye can do that. A human eye and a human brain, the two connected. <laughs> so so actually there are, um, there have been several discoveries of planets like this, uh, you know, planets being confirmed by teams of citizens and and people have published papers with astronomers and and it's and and often they're actually really interesting planetary systems because there's stuff that you know the the algorithm hasn't picked up and and it's you know not going to be something super obvious because the super obvious stuff gets picked up often by the astronomers themselves uh, but yeah i mean we need people to to eyeball these light curves <laughs> yeah that's awesome I mean to, to me that comes right back to something you were saying a bit earlier actually about you know one of the key hurdles that we need to get through is actually just it's just brain space and brain power and actually that comes back to that a bit to me in terms of yeah. you know to make these next steps it all sounds you know really fabulous but actually it sounds like we've just got to do the work actually we've got the data just need to do the work and anyone who's available to help do that then brilliant we can all Mm-hmm. sort of be involved together which is awesome so returning to a key point raised by dr haywards to close this section of the program she told us that there is not likely to be another earth or another planet out there that is very similar to earth she explains more about this in some published work if you're keen to find out more about why there is no planet b um my collaborator and i uh, my collaborator arwen nicholson who's a postdoc here in astrophysics at Exeter as well. Uh, we recently published a piece called There Is No Planet B in Aeon, uh, which if you're going to read it, <laughs> I recommend it. And I really recommend that you read the comments as well and leave a comment because the clearly this is a, a topic that, you know, really um, it struck a nerve. People have very strong feelings about it. So I'd love to hear how, you know, how you feel about it as well and continue the discussion on it. But we still know so little about our uh, life on Earth. Uh, We know very little about life in the deep, and obviously we know even less about life up in space. The more I find out about these planets, we're always striving to find ones that are going to be more similar to Earth. The more I look, the more I realise, like, actually, no. 
Well, thank you very much to the special guests who contributed to this programme. Thank you to the University of Exeter's Professor Sasha Dahl and Professor David Hoskin. Thank you very much to the University of Derby's Professor Michael Sweet. And thank you to the University of Exeter's Dr Raphael Haywood. You also heard some music produced by yours truly and also a fantastic track earlier on by Dave Buckley and The Watchwood. That's called Still She Sleeps. Hope you enjoyed the programme. Goodbye for now.